Hey, this is Lawrence Huber from Wings, and you're listening to Fab Four Free For All. And welcome to another edition of the Fab Four Free For All, the weekly or whenever we want to record Beatles <laughs> internet radio show, podcast, whatever you want to call it. It's a mouthful, uh, Mitch. A mouthful, yes. Yeah. We, well, we all are a mouthful. Yes. And a handful, too. But... I am Mitch Axelrod, your moderator for tonight's exciting episode, and joining me, as they always are, and I wish they wouldn't, are... That's not true, Mitch. This is Rob Leonard. And you are... Tony Chiguardo. And tonight we are going to be talking with someone who you've probably all heard in, in, in everything. <laughs> uh, you've heard either on the radio, on TV, on Broadway, on Broadway. The Fest. Uh, the Fest, for Beatles fans, true. Tonight we are going to be talking with... Session musician, wings guitarist, guitarist extraordinaire. And all around nice and guy. And all around nice guy, yes. Uh, Lawrence Juber. So, Lawrence, welcome to the Fab Four Free For All. Well, thank you. Happy to be here. Well, let's save that until after the interview. You may not have that <laughs> nice. sentiment later. <laughs> anyway, you have a, a sort of a new CD out. Well, it's a new CD, but of a, an older. Actually, it's not. Uh, let me correct you. It's not a CD. Oh, it's oh, digital, strictly digital. Digital, oh, it's digital. only release of, uh. of Standard Time, which was my first album. There is a CD that comes with the limited edition of my Guitar With Wings book. Right. But... Oh. This release is specifically a digital one. Ah, oh, I, cool. I must have been thinking about the EP that came out in 82, which which we'll get to. Right. That was a CD as well. But if you don't mind, let's get back uh, to really the roots of Lawrence Juber. Uh, most people know you from Wings, but, you know, doing the research on your background, it's amazing how how much you did prior. Most people can tell, obviously, by your voice. That it's amazing that he had time to sleep. Well, is yeah. It's amazing. Which well, is that's very true. But you were, you were born in London, and you were way before the Beatles. I mean, well, not way before the Beatles, but your influences were whom? Well, I mean, the Beatles were really important. But prior to that, I mean, we had Cliff Richard and the Shadows. You know, Cliff Richard was like England's Elvis, really. Yeah, sure. Um, except he was much more mainstream. And the Shadows were his backing group, and they were, like, just super cool because they played all this twangy guitar music. I mean, it was like, we would have called it surf music, but we didn't have any surf. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, there is there is that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Hank Marvin was the guitarist um, in the band uh, playing a, a red Stratocaster. And it just, the whole thing, he looked like, kind of like Buddy Holly with the with the glasses. And, and you know, they had hits in England. I mean, yeah. they had instrumental hits. Because you could, in the early 60s, you could have instrumental hits. And the Shadows, I mean, even the fact that the first bona fide Beatle composition being Cry for a Shadow mm -hmm. uh, was exactly, you know, influenced by them. And so that was important to me. But, you know, 1963 was really the year where I just knew that I wanted to be playing guitar. And finally, um, for my 11th birthday, I got a guitar. And that was November 12, 63, which, mm. you know, you look at the Beatles timeline they did the Royal Command performance the week before. With the Beatles came out a week or so later. I Want to Hold Your Hand came out. You know, and, and She Loves You was, was released in August of 63. So there was this kind of cresting wave of Beatlemania that was going on at that point. So that was, you know, that was part of the energy. But then I very quickly, you know, was listening to other stuff, too. I mean, this, I was actually, I think I have more Stones albums than Beatles <laughs> albums. Oh, okay. That's I was, in, I was cool. in Nashville last week, and they have the traveling uh, Rolling Stones, the exhibitionism yeah. um, <laughs> exhibit. And, you know, we're looking through that and seeing all the early uh, Rolling Stones albums, which, you know, I had half my record collection was stolen in 1976. Uh -huh. And that included... All the Stones albums. Uh, you know, it's funny because so, when I thought about the exhibitionism, I always thought the entrance of that whole show should be the big zipper, you know, from... <laughs> <laughs> or the tongue, <laughs> one way or the other. Or the, well, the tongue might be a little... Yeah. Well, actually, both of them would be kind of weird, but go ahead. We're sorry. We interrupted you. Oh, that's all right. Yeah, so, you know, it was the Stones and 
the Beach Boys, you know, and uh, I was listening to a lot of American Top 40 radio uh, because we had Radio Luxembourg, which was way more Top 40 than than the BBC was. Yeah, BBC really didn't get into kind of Top 40 programming until the pirate radio stations kind of forced them into it. That was a few years later. So to begin with, I'd listen to Radio Luxembourg and hear the Top 40 stuff and then be listening to Louis Armstrong or Django Reinhardt and, you know, like jazz stuff, too. And it just for me, I just not only fell in love with guitar, with the instrument, but I also fell in love with music and how music was put together, the substance of music. So I was listening to what the guitars were doing or what the bass was doing, what the what the drums were doing and, and just like understanding how it all fit together. And by the time I was 13, my ambition was to become a studio musician. I enjoyed playing. I mean, I, I like playing out because I got paid. I mean, it was, you know, it was a gig. And I was playing in top 40 bands and I was playing with a local band leader who started me out when I was 13 playing weddings. And I just kind of kept doing that because I could make money doing it. But I also was determined to to get an education because both my parents had to leave school in their early teens because they were in London right in the middle of the Blitz. Oh, no, wow. Or two. And, and so I wasn't going to miss the opportunity, even though I had um, offers to be professional, you know, from the time I was about 15. It just didn't, it wasn't on my agenda to right. do that until after high school when I was, I was going to go to college outside of London and it just didn't make sense to leave because I'd been paying my dues for so long there that um, I took a, what they now call a gap year. I took a year off and I was just working around London and doing demo sessions and playing in bands and I joined the National Youth Jazz Orchestra and then I applied to London University and I got in there to study music and musicology. I wasn't studying guitar. I was pretty much mostly self-taught on guitar, except for taking classical guitar lessons. And I did that really because I I needed a certain grade level of of guitar in order to be able to study more music. So um, it was all with this vision of becoming a studio musician. It's funny, uh, Lawrence, whenever we have a guest on the show, and we are familiar with your background because as Beatle fans and having met you at the, the conventions and listened to the solo music and whatnot. And you had him at but, the library. And I had you at, at performing at the library, yeah. Um, That's right. I remember that. And the funny thing is, we always, no matter what, you still end up going back to Wikipedia to look at what it says about an artist when you go to speak with them, interview them. That's what I do. I, right. <laughs> I go to Wikipedia to find out what I've done. <laughs> well, what, what made me laugh, and I have to bring this up, in Wikipedia, it has a great line where it says, he earned his music degree at London University's Goldsmiths College where he expanded his horizons by playing the lute. Now, I've got to ask, you were doing session work, you were (laughs) gigging. How much expansion, and and I say this jokingly, yet seriously, you obviously really wanted to learn to really get into stringed instruments and play, so you learned to play the lute as well? Well, yeah, I mean, that was partially because it was kind of cool because we had a very strong early music department Ah, at Goldsmiths. Okay. Um, You know, with musicologists uh, that ended up becoming very, you know, very well known in that field, especially uh, one of my tutors was a woman named Margaret Bent, who um, ended up becoming, you know, just really kind of the top of the field. Wow. Um, but But also, I mean, like, you know, I remember Focus, the band Absolutely. Focus and Jan Ackerman, the, the lead guitarist, played the lute. Oh, and it was God. just a cool thing. You know, I, I was really, and I think part of it for me is that whereas typically an American fingerstyle guitar player, which mm-hmm. is you know, what I do for my solo work is to play fingerstyle guitar, an American player would have grown up on a, a diet of Doc Watson, uh, Reverend Gary Davis, Chet Atkins, Mel Travis. I was getting inspired by what they call in England called the folk baroque which was pentangle it was Bert Jansch and John yes. Remborn yeah. Davy Graham the stuff that Jimmy Page absorbed into Led Zeppelin in terms of that that kind of much even though they call it folk baroque it really I think is more kind of renaissance 
in terms of that kind of lute texture and and with Celtic overtones yeah. and all of that. And and that was the stuff that engaged me on one level. And then I was listening to ragtime as well. I really love the idea of this kind of almost piano-like way of playing a guitar where you could play an accompaniment and the melody at the same time. But for me, playing the lute was just part of the musicology of it. And in fact, right now I'm, I'm working on a, a kind of a curated folio of what I call guitarology, which is basically the history of fretted instruments through musical examples. Wow. Uh, which includes lute music and Renaissance guitar music, which was like Renaissance guitar was kind of like a ukulele. Yeah. It was a small four-string instrument, stuff like that, because that's an area that I've always been interested in, and it's what's come up in some of the educational stuff that I've been doing is that nobody's really kind of doing anything in that space, that space between rock and classical with kind of folk and jazz hovering over in the background. I, I think about the only other player that I've seen that comes close to mixing the time. I mean, it is true. When you listen to your work, you hear the mix of genres. And it's, you know, very cool because you're talking about the lute. Another friend who was hearing some of your work was saying that there's some gypsy overtones at time to time in, in what you what you were doing. I think of, um, you know, it's mentioned in some instances you're a fan of Paul Simon. And I think of something like right. like Angie. You know, which was uh, inspired, or he really picked that up from a British guitarist, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah. I mean, that that was written by Davy Graham. Davy Graham, yeah. Just in the same way as Paul Simon's approach to Scarborough Fair drew pretty heavily on Martin Carthy's arrangement of it, who was another part of another one of that English folk scene. But David Graham was kind of really like the first of, the, of those. And he he also developed uh, what we call dad-gad tuning, D-A-D-G-A-D, which is a tuning I use extensively. And I didn't really get it directly from him. I kind of got it a little more, I think, from Al Stewart and from John Remborn and, and the, the more kind of the folk and folk rock side of the spectrum. And of course, it's kind of ironic that, you know, I opened with a friend of mine. We had a duo and we opened for... For Al Stewart in 1960, probably 67 or 68, and I ended up like I've produced four albums for Al and toured with him. So kind of connecting with that aspect of my folk roots and the local band that I I saw the most of in the late 60s was was Fairport Convention. Oh. Oh, wow. I was going to they say were Richard Thompson, band. yeah. And I, you know, I'm rich, I just yeah. love Richard Thompson's guitar playing. He's wonderful, yeah. Lawrence, yeah, um, you said that your goal was to be a session musician. Now, why not play in a band? Why did you decide that, okay, I want to play sessions instead of being in a band? I did do band stuff. I just didn't really want to be traveling. Mm. And I just, okay. because it's, and this is something I think that you can, if I can explain it, that... It was the process of making records was one of the things that really intrigued me, the whole production side of it. Of course, I didn't really understand that fully until I joined Wings and actually got to see production from behind the console rather than the other side of the glass sitting in front of a music stand. But the the process of making recorded music, to give you a Beatle reference there, Um, I think one of the things that made the Beatles so kind of unique was the way in which their their musical education came through records. And I think there's some significance that when Buddy Holly played in Liverpool, they didn't go to see him. Yeah. Yeah. Whether that was because they just didn't want to kind of experience it, you know, in a live scenario when they were so attached to the records then it could also have simply been that they were just too busy gigging because i don't think it's been a band that did as many i mean like doing three four gigs a day in different (laughs) locations was there like a a, like in the united states there was the wrecking crew was there a similar type of band in in great britain that they were trying to you know work towards as a session musician the reality of it is the wrecking crew is a little bit of a branding thing in a way that's because the wrecking crew was actually a pretty broad base of musicians there were the the hardcore like hal blaine and carol Kay, the hardcore ones but there were a lot of there were a lot of guitar players that were in that orbit 
Yeah, the Louis Sheldons and Glenn Campbell. Yeah, yeah, a lot. Well, but beyond Glenn Campbell, I mean, yeah, there were. I mean, you know, like on my like Frank Sinatra's My Way, I think there were like five or six guitar players. <laughs> wow. You know? Yeah. And it's like Barney Kessel was really part of the Wrecking Crew, but you don't really kind of reference him that way. True. So uh, in London, I mean, there was certainly there was a group, a hardcore group of established players. And I, you know, I was pretty late to the game. I mean, I was walking in on sessions with players like Clem Cattini on drums, who was a drummer in the Tornadoes mm-hmm. and played on all the Joe Meek records. Yep. And Herbie Flowers on bass, who oh. was you know, had been around for, I don't know how long, but, you know, of course, a friend of Paul's. In fact, I met, first time I met Paul was on a session in North London where I was working with Herbie Flowers on a jingle, and we went to the the restroom on our Musicians' Union break and walked in, and there's Paul McCartney zipping up his fly. (laughs) And Herbie introduced me to Paul. and after he washed his hands, of course. Yeah. to be joining Wings by any means. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, there were this kind of core of musicians, some of whom had been around since the 60s, but not all of them. I mean, J- big Jim Sullivan, for example, who was probably like, you know, the, the Tommy Tedesco of the London session scene, was out on the road with Tom Jones. Mm. Um, sure. Because... The session scene in London, whereas it could be well paid, was not as the union was nowhere near as powerful as like the American musicians union. So the the, the wrecking crew people were, were doing a, it was a different level of work. And, you know, the 70s era was really not it wasn't like the 60s era in terms of the number of sessions um, also. But I, I found my niche in it all and what happened was i was i was doing a bbc broadcast concert with the national youth jazz orchestra and the next day i got a call from a guy named david katz who was a violinist who was in england what we call a fixer in america that it's a contractor but that's somebody who books musicians for session work and he called me the next day and and it was it was funny because I, i was still in college at the time and the house that I lived in was four stories, five stories, and I lived in the basement, and the phone was on the top floor. <laughs> and, and this was this was like you know, way before answering machines, and if the phone rang, I had to just go flying up the stairs to get to it before the person you know, would hang up. And I just managed to get to it in time. And there's this guy, David Katz, who wanted to book me for the following week for an album project. And I said, I'm sorry, that's my final exams. And I just couldn't do it. And I thought that I'd completely blown the opportunity. And then he called me a a week later and and booked me for something else. And then I just started doing a lot of stuff. And and in those days in England, the the BBC had what they called a needle drop rule, where you, you couldn't play more than a certain number of hours of recorded music. And what would happen would be if a DJ had a record of the week, they would re-record it in the BBC studios in Maida Vale, uh, which is not that far from St. John's Wood, where Abbey Road is. Um, And and we would go in, you know, I'd get booked to play guitar on a session with, you know, Phil Everly or or some artist who was coming through. And and so I was learning the ropes in that kind of environment. And then I was some days I'd I'd start at 8 a.m. with a jingle session and then go on to Olympic Studios to do a record with Andrew Lloyd Webber or something like that. I mean, it was a lot of it wasn't really I wasn't really doing rock sessions. I was doing pop sessions and more legit kind of stuff. I mean, there was a great record producer named Del Newman who um, arranged a lot of uh, Elton John's yes. stuff after Parkmaster. And with him, I did uh, we did a, an album with Rosemary Clooney, wow. which I think must have been about 1976. And she was making a comeback and was on tour with Bing Crosby and was in London for a while. And we did, we did a movie. In fact, the first time I ever heard 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover was then because we did a, we did a cover of it. With um, Rosie Clooney, wow! And I did. I worked with you know with Charles Aznavour, who's a great 
French-Armenian singer. In fact, an album I did with him in 1977 in Paris, um, I discovered from my Wikipedia page, I discovered it was number one in France for most of the year of 1978. And I had no idea. You know, you mentioned Maida Vale and uh, Bing Crosby in the late 70s. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, 1977, Bing Crosby recorded his last music at Maida Vale. Um, no, actually, he recorded it at CBS Studios. Oh, was it? Because Made Vale was just the BBC broadcast studio. And my recollection, because I was doing a fair amount of work at that studio, was that that's where he recorded it. And the, the theory was, because the doors into the studio were extremely heavy, and and the theory was that that was actually what did him in in the end. Was, <laughs> wow! Was, uh, struggling with the studio doors at CBS, but I, I, doubt, I doubt that's really yeah. But true. It's wow, a great, it's a great story. <laughs> it would be the, it, an ironic um, twist. By I thought the way. he died on the golf course. Yeah, I think he did. Actually. Yeah, no, it was the golf course. Yeah, yeah but I yeah. think that he was severely weakened by the studio. Wow! <laughs> but you know, I, we, were, we were reading that you also worked with Cleo Lane, and because of that involvement, you worked with George Martin. Yeah, well, George Martin was producing Cleo Lane, and uh, my friend Paul Hart, who was a great bass player and piano player, violinist, was working with her and recommended me for these sessions. And so I got to work with George Martin, I, literally, I mean, one of the first sessions I did. So, you know, that was um, interesting and, and a little intimidating. You know, all of a sudden I'm in the studio with George Martin, but... Yeah, um, but it worked out okay. The, the album I think was called "Born on a Friday." And what was that like uh, working with him, Noam? Other than intimidating, was he good? Oh, I mean, it was very cool because he has this very kind of easy bedside manner, as you know, Paul would describe it. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, just very, um, you know, no nothing to panic about. You know, whereas I work with record producers who get you know all wound up. So yeah, this guy is uh, always falling. He, you know, he was very mellow and and you know would tell. At one point, I, you know, we were doing something where we were on a fourth or fifth take, and I was starting to feel like, well, maybe that was getting to be too many. And he said, well, you know, with the Beatles, it was like, you know, which day was best? <laughs> As opposed to which was best. Oh, wow. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's like sometimes I had no idea what I was playing. Because there was one Tuesday night at Abbey Road in Studio Two with a string orchestra and some mandolins and Francis Monkman from Curved Air on harpsichord doing some instrumental piece. And I had really didn't register with me at all until 25 years later. I read in a magazine uh, where Alan Parsons was being interviewed and he mentioned that I played on Tales of Mystery and Imagination. Wow. Um, but I didn't know because they didn't put my name in the credits on the on the LP. I didn't get credited until the CD came out. But the one I did, you know, was very aware of was playing on the Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. that was you know the opportunity to play the James Bond theme, which you know was more of that great twangy guitar stuff. Yeah, I, you know, I didn't stop to realize until I read that, and it was really funny because I was reading that this evening, and it does tie in directly with that Shadows feel. Yeah, you don't stop yeah. to think about the James Bond theme and how much it really Well, okay, has well, that let, let me give you a, an interesting story on that front. Um, I've worked with Al Schmidt, who is one of the, if not the greatest engineer in Hollywood. Sure. And Al engineered the uh, Kisses on the Bottom album. And really has an enormous history going way, way back. I mean, he's 88 now. Wow. But he told me that at one point when he was in the early 60s, when he was doing A&R at um, RCA Records, his one of his artists was Dwayne Eddy. And they went to see a screening of a low-budget movie at a, a screening room in Hollywood where the producers were interested in having Dwayne Eddy do the score. And he turned it down. And uh, it turned out to be Dr. No. Oh, so man. I think built into the producer's concept was the idea of that kind of twangy guitar riff. Oh, wow. Sure, sure. That, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Wow. So let's skip a little forward. And we have to obviously talk about the elephant in the room and not saying that Paul's an elephant. <laughs> but I have a better question. Uh, what you, well, you have a better question? You didn't yeah, even yes. hear my question, and yours is better. Yes, I, I have a better question. Let me hear your question, then my, we'll get my to My question, because I don't want to forget this question. Go ahead. Lawrence, your, your wife is Hope Schwartz Juber. Of course, her father is Sherwood Schwartz. He wrote two of the most identifiable songs in the world. <laughs> Did you ever sit down and try to write with him? See, Hope used to have a, a comedy rock and roll band called The Housewives. 
<laughs> and Show was a big fan of that band. We had the songs like Call a Repairman, Ironing Board, In Sync and At Your Disposal. <laughs> I did defrosting all day. Uh, at its peak, we did it. Uh, Maggie Mayle, John Mayle's wife, was oh. in the band too. In fact, next month, we're doing a digital re-release of their album, Get the Dirt. It's never been available um, digitally. Um, and Show was a big fan of that. And he said, I want to do a Gilligan's Island musical and I want you to write the score. So we worked with him. He, uh, Sherwood and, and Hope's brother Lloyd wrote the, the book, yeah. uh, you know, the stage play, and we wrote the songs for it based on Sherwood's input and, and direction. And um, in fact, that got published last year. I mean, it's, it's been around for a long time, but it sat on the shelf for a while. But that got published last year, and we just had a, a debut um, uh, run in Melbourne, Australia, and it's uh, it was in Lincoln, Nebraska last week. I mean, it's getting done by all these what small professional and community theatres. So, yeah, we worked with him in that capacity. We also wrote a Brady Bunch musical, yeah. which we're still right. figuring out how we're going to get did, it. Did um, he play produced. any instruments or did he uh, like just sing? We didn't write with it that way. It was more, here's a song title, write the song. <laughs> right. so, right. but, but within the context that had been set up in the script, and there were a couple of places where we said, look, what's in the script really is the song, so let's adapt the dialogue into the song. So it was, but Hope and I do all that work together. We didn't actually sit down with Sherwood and work that oh, okay. way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that must be so much do fun. Have, however, we do have the piano that he wrote both the Gilligan and Brady themes on. Oh, wow. wow. That's fun. As well as the voodoo dolls. <laughs> <laughs> oh, beautiful. I was, I was joking my mother with says, Rob. My mother said, never go there. I never go there. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Rob and I were joking that if you, if you ask the common person on the street, John Q. Public, to sing either Getting Closer or the Brady Bunch theme, you know. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're going to know the Brady, Brady Bunch theme. Right. But, well, of course, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course, that's um, right. But just think of it from my perspective, being at this nexus of pop culture. Oh, sure. That's true. You know, the that's true. Beatles' wings on one side of the equation and Gilligan Brady on the other side of the equation. <laughs> well, you know, they're, i got to tell you, to a lot of people, I mean, they're equal. Uh, yes, you know, that's true. They oh, yeah. really are. Yeah, well, in, in my world, they certainly are. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So let's get to that Beatle universe for a little bit. And uh, actually, it was a, a good choice of words, universe, because first of all, how did you get the Wings gig? I was playing lead guitar on a TV show with David Essex. And um, this was September of 77. And each week we would have a different musical guest. And one week it was, for example, it was Ronnie Spector. Um, the next week was Denny Lane. Oh. And we did Go Now, and Denny liked the way that I played a guitar solo on it. And I gather he called Richard Niles, who was a musical director, a few days later to find out if I was versatile because apparently the criteria for a new Wings guitarist was going to be versatility, because as great as Jimmy was as a rock player, he didn't cover the whole range of where Paul's artistry lives. Right. And so they wanted, they wanted more versatility. And I think a certain, you know, a certain level of sobriety, too. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> And so I fit the suit, basically. <laughs> <laughs> a Johnny Bravo. A Johnny Bravo. A Johnny Bravo reference has to come here. Come on. Uh, some, sometime after that, I was at Air Studios in Oxford Circus, and I was early for a session, and Paul, Linder, and Denny were working on, I think it was the Oriental Nightfish. Right. Uh, they were doing a mix of the, the music for the animation, and um, Denny invited me in. So that was when I actually kind of really got to meet Paul and Linda. And then the cool thing was I was at Abbey Road in Studio Two, and I think it was like April 21st. It was a little over, you know, like days over 40 years ago, 78. I was in Abbey Road Studio Two doing a session, and there was a phone call for me, which was very unusual. And nobody ever called me at the studio. And I went up the stairs, the famous stairs, into the control room, which I'd never been in as many sessions as I'd done there. 
And there was Alan Crowder from MPL was on the line saying, uh, Danny wants to know if you can come and jam on Monday. And wow. oh, by the way, Paul and Linda will be there. Wow. Um, at which point I started to worry because I didn't know any wings tune. <laughs> so I borrowed some LPs from my brother Graham over the weekend and um, realized that I just, I wouldn't know where to start. So I just, yeah, to excuse the expression, I just went and winged it, oh. uh, which was cool because we actually just played some Chuck Berry tunes and some reggae grooves and, and then they offered me the gig as, as they did to Steve Holly too. Because so that was really Steve's audition, even though Steve had been in the the London Town video, right? Um, or was it London Town? Oh, or with a little luck, luck I believe. Was, yeah, yeah, with um, a little luck. And you've often said it was like McCartney University. Can you explain to our listeners what you mean well, by that? Just, yeah, because it was an education. I mean, I was just learning all kinds of stuff working with him. You know, whether it was the in inside the studio kind of thing or the the process of of writing and being an artist. Because you know, being a studio musician and being you know having studied music, I had a very specific perspective on things, but I'd never really been exposed to the that level of the artistry, and especially with Paul, who's you know at the very you know, highest level, and Denny too, for that matter. And then the business side of it, I, you know, I was starting to learn about the publishing and the writing side of it. And it was, it just felt like a continuance of my education. And, you know, I learned stuff that I still can use. So, Hey everybody, it's Tony from Fab Four Free For All here. I hate to interrupt the fun that we're all having listening to our interview with Lawrence Juber, but I wanted to give you the chance to win an autographed copy of LJ Can't Stop Playing the Beatles. We've got a few copies to give away to our loyal listeners. And here's all you have to do. Send an email to fab4freeforall at aol.com. That's fab, the number four, free, the number four, all at aol.com. And answer this question. And the answer can be found within the episode. Who was the artist that George Martin was recording the first time Lawrence Juber worked with him? Like I said, the answer is in the episode. So, listen carefully. Send an email to fab4freeforall at aol.com. That's fab, the number four free, the number four all at aol.com for your chance to win a copy of LJ Can't Stop Playing the Beatles, autographed by Lawrence Juber, courtesy of Lawrence Juber and your friends at fab 4 free for all Please be sure to get your entries in by May 27th, 2018. Was there, was there something when it came to Paul's sort of work ethic and, and sort of his methods for, for putting songs together, was there anything specific, Lawrence, that struck you as, you know, as you said, you're looking at one of the highest caliber, highest level writers at the time and the, one of the most successful. Were there any specific things where you said to yourself, this is why he is Paul McCartney? Well, I think all the time from that perspective, because he just, you know, there is that charisma and there's that that McCartney energy that kind of pervades all that stuff. I think that, you know, for me, a lot of it was kind of, oh, oh that's how you do it kind right. of moments. Or he would sit down and play something and, it, you know, he'd sit down and play Michelle, for example, and then, you know, watching his his right hand making the chords and it was realizing, oh, that's not in the sheet music. You know, it's like <laughs> little things like that. But you talk about the work ethic and how what really struck me and still does is just he's completely relentless about working. That it's it's what he lives for in terms of making music. I was amazed when I realized that he was in the studio uh, after he got out of jail in Tokyo in 1980. Right. He was back in the studio like within days of being back in England, mixing the, the Glasgow stuff. Wow. wow. It wasn't like he got out of jail and then spent, you know, three weeks in the Bahamas just recuperating. I mean, he was right back in studio and back to work. When are we going to see the Glasgow stuff when Back to the Egg comes out on archive release? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, what still... I, yeah that's what I've been told. And I, I mean, that. really, it should be, if, if there's any justice, it should be next year because that'll be the 40th anniversary. Yeah, it sure would. From your mouth to Paul's ears, yeah, as yeah. I say. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, ba was Back to the Egg supposed to be a two LP set? If I remember right, I, I thought I'd read that. Was that the plan? Not that I was ever no? aware of. Okay. 
I want to follow up with that. You know, for some reason, and I want to ask your opinion of Back to the Egg, but for some reason there are a couple of albums that Paul never, ever talks highly about or, you know, or highly regards. One of them is Press to Play, which we all love, and one of them is Back to the Egg. But yet he Back always to- talks very highly of Lawrence. Oh, yes. He, he always no, no, talks highly of that players. band. Well, I right. think, I mean, but- to be honest, I think that that Rolling Stone review kind of made a difference really i think that it was just kind of disappointing but that's just my opinion but but i think part of it and and this look at it from this perspective that the wings albums that he looks at as being successful and maybe even even beyond wings are the ones where there were big hit singles yeah yeah and the big hit single for the first phase of what we were doing was Good Night Tonight, which wasn't on the album. Right. Yeah. Much to Columbia Records' chagrin, because they would have sold at least another million albums by putting that song on there. Yeah. Right. Sure. That was what it did. didn't really fit the vibe of the album. But, you know, record companies don't care about stuff like that. They're not into concepts, they're just into what's going to sell. Right. I also think that whereas. Capital had learned how to market McCartney. I think that Columbia didn't really know how to do it. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, it's significant that he didn't stay with Columbia, that he ended up going back to Capital. But it still Um, sold a million copies, which is still successful. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, I don't. He hasn't sold a million copies since. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's you're very, true. You're very right. I mean, other that's than true. maybe Wingspan and stuff. I mean, the compilation. Oh yeah, well, you know, a, a compilation yeah. like that. I think part of it also was that period was not necessarily an easy period. I mean, we talked about him being busted in Japan, yeah. but I think that Linda was was getting tired of being in the band yeah. because she now had four kids and she'd done the world tour and, you know, Paul's still pushing forward with this. And I think that it was just getting to be a little too much. And, you know, Paul was about to turn 40 and, you know, I think there was a kind of a process of reevaluation going on. The seventies were turning into the eighties. The zeitgeist was changing. Yeah. yeah. You know, there was a yeah. very rapid transition from, you know, you look at the wings over America period and then Linda gets pregnant with James and London town is a much softer album. And so, you know, and then he signs with Columbia, they bring in Chris Thomas who pushes back to the egg in a more rock and roll direction. But there's a certain, if you excuse the the term, tug of war going on (laughs) between Chris's more rock and roll sensibility and Paul's kind of still getting into this kind of pop, kind of folky comfort zone that kind of takes over a bit more on side two of the album, um, in spite of the orchestra stuff. And I think, you know, if So Glad to See You Here had been a single, I think Rock Radio would have been all over. Oh, I yep. agree with you. They were all over Lucille when the Campuchia record came out. Yeah. And yeah, they were yeah. all over Coming Up because it's Paul. It was a, a rock song. You know, yeah. it had a danceable groove to it. and But then, you know, a lot of records had danceable grooves to them. And that was part of the style. So what is your opinion of Back to the Egg? I think it's a cool album. For me, it holds up. Yes. Um, but maybe I'm just biased because, you know, I, I kind of know I know what's going on in there. Yeah, there well, were a, a few things. I mean, I can honestly say that the arrow through me, as cool as it is, could have been a lot more commercial if it had been done a little more of the mainstream wing sound rather than the, the kind of almost like warming up for McCartney 2 kind of vibe. Because it's only Paul and, and Steve are the basic track on that. Right. And there's two drum kits on it. And that's um, one of uh, Elvis Costello's favorite songs. So, is it really? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, well uh, Erica Badu actually did a whole record just using the intro to that. Just using it as a looped sample. I mean, you saying it, it still stands up. And it's funny because a number of episodes of our show are analysis and review episodes where we talk specifically about an album. And all of us really, you know, universally, we don't consult one another, but we all really love Back to the Egg. When you go, when we go back to that record, there's so much there. It's a very rich album. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, really there's a lot is. of texture to it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you mentioned Goodnight Tonight, and I'd be remiss if I didn't say that that was probably our first real experience into your playing. And, I mean, your guitar solo just rips yeah. on Goodnight Tonight. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's one of the best things about that song. So I wanted to give well, you a little... it fits the song. Yeah. Lawrence, what was the first Thank song you, you recorded oh, with uh, Wings? The first song was Same Time Next Year. Wow. Which wow. we did as a demo um, for the soundtrack of the movie of the same name, right. which Paul didn't get the gig. <laughs> and I was amazed because I'd never played on a demo that was so heavily produced. I mean, he, you know, they put a 60-piece string orchestra on it. Um, <laughs> demo. You know, um, I thought it was really cool. I mean, that could have been a, you know, that was a kind of a big ballad in the, the My Love kind of area. I mean, yeah. that could have been on Back to the Egg. But again, it didn't have that more more kind of like, rootsy edge to it the first song that we recorded for the album uh was actually to you wow which was radically different from same time next year which we'd done just a few weeks earlier yeah sure um did to you we did spin it on and we did old siam so i think we're, we're in the first batch now without giving any secrets away um, Lawrence. No, give them away. Give them away. No, no, but I'm just saying, without giving any secrets away, if, if tomorrow we were to see an expanded version of, of Back to the Egg, were there some radically different versions of songs on the album or things that you remember working on that uh, were changed radically or abandoned or, you know, what have you around, the, around that period? Not really. I mean, uh, you know, there was the one, there was Cage, which was a song that oh, oh, didn't make that. the cut. Which yeah. was actually, I thought, one of my favorites. Oh, it's a great song. The ballad part of that, if the ballad part of that had just been pulled out and just taken as a as a standalone song, oh, yeah, um, yeah, you know, because yeah. I thought that that was a really kind of hooky melodic bit. But other than that, I mean, other than like there's a demo version of Rockestra with just us playing, right, um, right, and I don't remember. I don't remember anything else. I mean, there was my tune. There was Maisie, yes. the instrumental, which is on the Standard Time yes. uh, release. Because um, I never, I didn't imagine that Paul would ever include it on a Back to the Egg uh, reissue, uh, even though it was very much, it was in that time frame. Uh, right. It was like one day Paul just turned around and said, you got, any ch- you got a tune? Uh, anybody got any tunes? And, and, and I had that piece that I'd just written a couple of days before. And I said, well, you know, I've got this. And he said, well, let's record it. So we did. Hmm. Um, That's correct. And I thought it turned out really cool. And the fact that I have Paul McCartney playing bass on my first bona fide composition. (laughs) And Denny's playing harmonica on that. Yeah. Denny playing harmonica. Yeah. It's really cool. I mean, and we're going to get to Standard Time in a minute. And I think if if people want to hear Standard Time, obviously go go get it. It's out now digitally. Yes. Yeah, I mean, iTunes, Amazon, you can stream it on Spotify. Um, yeah, it's, it's really, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a very cool album. One last thing about Wings. Um, first of all, the Campuchia, I mean, you know, you had the whole orchestra band there, and they're playing Let It Be, and who gets the solo? You. How did <laughs> yeah, that feel? Nobody else, nobody else was going to step forward and do it, and I was used to doing it uh, on tour. Right. So I just thought, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that must have been kind of cool to do that. Yeah, especially with uh, Pete Townsend breathing brandy fumes down the <laughs> he, he was on another planet, I think, at that time. Yes, he... he yeah. Planet Pete. <laughs> and what about the, the tour, the 79 tour? What an eclectic set list you had. I mean, hot as sun, part of, you know, the guy has, at that point, 20, 30 years of stuff... 20 years of stuff. Well, 10 years of solo yeah. music. Ta- even. 10, 10 yeah. years. And, and you, but hot you guys sun. pick out Hottest Sun? I mean, he wanted to play some lead guitar. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. That's, that's it really is that simple, huh? That's, I, cool. that's my opinion, yeah. <laughs> How were those uh, shows? Were they kind of cool or did, in oh, terms of artistic? I mean, the Glasgow show was really quite phenomenal. I mean, we were, you know, that was really, by that point, the band was really starting to gel. You know, and then Cappuccia was right after Christmas. So, you know, we hadn't had the benefit of kind of that whole run of gigs where we, you know, with with the Glasgow. For me, Glasgow was was better than Cappuccia. But then, you know, some people who saw both thought Cappuccia was better. So, I, you know, what do I know? I think Cappuccia was probably the bigger deal the event, because, yeah. yeah, I mean, I yeah. remember. Well, it was Camp- certainly a bigger deal, uh, just in terms of 
the cohesion of the band. Yeah, because um, the segments that have leaked of the Glasgow, because we've seen a few songs from Glasgow. Yeah, well, the last tremendous. There's nothing, there's nothing on video. There's only the the last flight bootleg scene. album. Yeah, yeah. CD. Yeah. Which is that whole concert. Which is a, which is a great. great, and we're hoping great that, that if again uh, we don't even know again, and we don't want you to give anything away, but um, we're assuming that if they do do an archival release of Back to the Egg, that would be on it. But knowing Paul's feelings for Back to the Egg, and he still hasn't done it yet, you but know, you, you don't know what know though what, it would give happen. it would give the props to the band though. Yes, it would. I mean, he's he. Right, like but you, the, said. you know, the rumor that I heard. Yep. Um, for what it's up. worth, was that it was going to be the Glasgow concert and the Rupert stuff oh, too. oh of course it's one of those days in in scotland where we did we did all those rupert demos so we have to talk about the frog because you have such a connection to frogs now the frog <laughs> song and and then kermit uh you know we're leaving wings now by the way and we're going to sesame <laughs> street yeah, well, yeah, and I mean, the muppet movie I, you know, after wings i ended up in la and I've, you know as a studio musician i played on some muppet stuff so i played banjo for kermit <laughs> <laughs> wait but it sounds a little weird you played banjo for kermit yes because uh, kermit's not real by the way you, you knew that right <laughs> don't burst his really? <laughs> there you go. in my mind he's, a, and he's then, alive and then, well he is actually and then you also came full circle with kermit with the new muppet movie didn't you well it was a there were two recent muppet movies i played on the first one right the the revival oh, sort of thing speaking of revivals you're also doing some musical stuff for the new roseanne as well aren't you well, yeah, I played on the original show. Oh, did you? And we did a couple of sessions for the new series, but I think they're still using the original theme. Oh, okay. um, But yeah, all, all that guitar stuff, that's me. And Home Improvement uh, as but well? But also, yeah, Home Improvement, uh, uh, Seventh Heaven. People I mean, don't when know I first that. got to LA, Happy Days was still in, in um, production. Wow. I played on the last last season of Happy Days. So that was too. fun. So you got to play all that kind of late 50s, early 60s groove things as little interstitials, yeah. I guess. And then I played with the Monkeys when they did that. That was then This Is Now right. stuff. Yeah. And uh, also Lawrence Tuber played with uh, Ringo Starr, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, well, that was, yeah. <laughs> they fixed that on the CD. They did. They did. Um, but that was like July of 1980. I mean, that was kind of right before we started rehearsing the tug of war stuff i went with paul to super bear studios in the south of france for about 10 days to work on that stuff with ringo and george as well right uh, many people george, don't know yeah that. george was april 86 um, april 17th wow wow 1986 and i know that date well because my daughter ilsi was born in that morning oh. seven o'clock in the morning and then by Early afternoon, I was at Sound City in Van Nuys wait, working with George. Wait, wait. So, so Hope didn't um, give you crap about leaving to go. <laughs> Sorry, hon. Got to go. Beatles oh, waiting. No, I mean, she was she she was just pissed off that she'd gone into labor and she couldn't get to meet her. And so, so when I was at the studio, I put her on put George on the phone with Aww. her, and he invited her to come when she was ready. And a few days later, he was at Village Recorders, and we went with Ilse, who was then you know two days old. Oh. And um, Hope got to meet George. And then at one point, George took Elsie out of the baby carrier and was holding her and dancing around with her. Wow. And then wow. right before he gave her back, he said something in Sanskrit and touched her on the forehead. Really? And we said, what did you say? And he said, you know, I was so into this young life that I decided I would give her the gift of music. And she is a very, uh, yeah. very gifted musician. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, very well, she's talented. Certainly, she's certainly the songwriter du jour right now. Yeah. She's actually, I talked to her this afternoon, she's she's in the studio with Mark Ronson, uh, who you might awesome. be familiar with because yeah. he's worked with Paul. Yeah. Just worked with Paul. Um, she's new, yeah. working on his new album. Wow. Um, and last week she was in Amsterdam with Martin Garrix, who's a well-known Dutch DJ, uh, working on his album. Oh, and sure she co-wrote All Night on Beyonce's Lemonade album. Um, wow. Sean Mendes, Percy. Um, wow. Oh, it's a whole bunch of stuff. Major Lazer. That's just such so a... So in 20 years, I, we're going to have to have to look at a Wikipedia page because I can't keep up. <laughs> I've <laughs> seen her at the fest and she was, was... I remember the first time she was on stage with you at the fest, I believe. And wasn't she playing drums? 
She was playing drums, yeah. yeah and in she fact, was yeah, she great. still occasionally plays drums. That was, I mean, it was mind-blowing. It was be- years ago, but it was great. It was a really cool thing to see you and, and your daughter, you know, on stage together. But what a beautiful story about George, though. That's that's amazing. And there is, oh, yeah, there, really very, there is very a... Sweet. And Elsie actually has a tattoo on her arm that is the gift of music in Sanskrit. So. Oh, wow. That's... If you go to her Wikipedia page, you can... Um, you can find find out more on her. I hope it, and meanwhile, Hope, my wife, has also put out an album last year, an album of protest songs. Oh, wow. Uh, called Resistors. It's um, under the name The Nasty Housewives, wow. along with our good friend uh, Marcy Levy, who used to work with Eric Clapton and, sure. and wrote Lay Down That's- Sally. Yeah, wow. sure. Oh, that's tremendous. You know, it's interesting because we're talking about all these different songs and all these different appearances on television. And Lawrence, I say this with much respect, but it's really interesting. Similarly to a lot of, you know, the quote wrecking crew people and things like that, it must be kind of like a in a way a positive thing, but it's so interesting that you know, to a degree you're not a household name, but yet you are heard in every household. I mean, everyone has heard work that you've done. So it's is it interesting that you can kind of walk down the street and sort of say, well, okay, this, they may not know who I am. They've heard your work. And it must be a fascinating kind of place to be at times. It, it was, I, you know, I, I can't re- be really impressed with myself over it because for me it's just always it's been work. in a day's work. Yeah, but, you know, but like today... I was in the, the local shopping mall, and over the sound system comes one of Elsie's songs. And then Hope went to the gym yesterday, and the first thing she hears when she walks in is one of Elsie's songs. And it's like, <laughs> hashtag proud parents. You know? it's like, and she's another one who's like, she's doing all this stuff, but she's deliberately like not pushing her name out there. Sure. Because for me, it's, it's all about making music. Right. I never really sought the spotlight in the first place. And but getting into Wings was a great kind of step up the ladder. And as I said earlier, a great education. And I, it helped form a core audience for me. And I've, I, I've built an audience for my solo guitar playing too. And so it all kind of just all works together. And once in a while, it's kind of useful having the credits because uh, my publicist can get me a, a, an interview on the right radio station that helps promote a gig at the local performing arts center or whatever. Sure, right. And it's stuff like that where the mechanism, and again, it's something I learned from being in Wings, the mechanism of being in the music business, the, the promotional side of it, the interviews, the photo sessions, the videos, all that stuff. Right. I've never experienced that before. And it again, it gave me kind of a foundation. I wanted to ask a question about the Rockestra Sessions. It was a big band with rock and roll attitude, and at the same time, it's kind of a session thing also, and as a session musician playing in Rockestra, except these guys are all well-known people, what was that like as a musician and also just as an observer in the room filled with all these Especially rock Especially with, with Paul being a, a session leader, yeah, I guess, yeah. throughout this, too. Oh, it was very cool. Have you seen my book? Yes. Guitar yes. Wings? Yes. Because there's a whole chapter in there with pictures of that that really kind of like being a fly on the wall. Yeah, you the must have thing. seen the 20-minute video, right? But for the right? people who haven't seen it, what do you remember about it? Oh, it was just it was an amazing experience. Hank Marvin was there too, right? Yeah. I mean, Hank Marvin was there. Right. I mean, just you know, I'm looking down the line there, and it's like Hank Marvin's next to me, and there's there's Danny, and there's Dave Gilmore, and there's Pete Townsend, yeah. and John Bonham's playing drums, and it's like, whoa, you know, it's like one of those like whoa moments. <laughs> A bit surreal. So, so let's get to Standard Time now, uh, so we can wrap up. But I want people to know about Standard Time. Explain how it came to be. It's obviously. Standard time, there's a lot of standards on it. Uh, it does include Maisie, which is obviously a, a I guess, an unreleased yeah, wing song. Absolutely. Uh, but explain how it came together. Well, Paul wanted various artists to record stuff out of his publishing catalog. You know, he has this vast publishing catalog. Sure. With all these great songs in it, like Stormy Weather and, and After You've Gone and There Will Never Be Another You and you know, just a lot of really cool stuff. And he asked me to do something. Now, were he to have asked me today, I would have done it all solo guitar. 
Wow. But back then, you know, having come out of the session world and, and having a, a very uh, close working relationship with Richard Niles, who was the musical director on the David Essex show, who then later went on to do a lot of work with Paul, orchestrating, you know, things like Blue Sway sure. um, from that era. First of all, I, I did Autumn Leaves and After You've Gone with Paul Hart, who was the Cleo Lane piano player bass player violinist um and he did a, an arrangement of autumn leaves that is almost like ravel with a string quintet no sextet yeah. and then he and i did a version of after you've gone just piano and guitar in a very kind of like almost quasi-classical kind of way yeah of doing it. Um, and then i realized that i really needed a co-producer so i brought richard niles in and he did some amazing arrangements including a a 40-piece orchestra version of Stormy Weather with me playing electric guitar. Which is really um, fantastic yeah, on the album. very cool. Yeah, that was a really amazing session. It um, goes into places to, where you wouldn't expect, like toward the end. It's just, you know, it's, it's such a great arrangement. Uh, it's not well, just and a what typical. happens towards the end of that is Chris Lawrence, who's the bass player, who is one of the great English jazz bass players, and every take that we had done, he pretty much had stuck to the, the chart for the last verse. Um, this was the very last take we could do because the clock was running out. And when it got to that last verse, he took off. And I just, and he, he went off in this, this really cool jazz yes. driven thing. Just let me float on top of it. And it's just one of those moments where, where you, tr when you always want to try and capture lightning in a bottle in the studio. And that really kind of captured something unique. Uh, it's nothing that we could ever, I don't think we could ever reproduce it. It was just so cool. Yeah, it is. It um, really is cool. So for Brothers, the old um, Woody Herman tune, I just took the big band arrangement and did it all on guitars. So the trumpets and the saxophones and all the different solos were all done on different guitars, different kinds of sounds to differentiate them. And the whole album really was kind of a reflection of what I had accomplished as a studio musician. And of course, you know, at that point, unless it was basically a George Benson kind of like early smooth jazz kind of clone type thing, the, I couldn't get a record company to release it. Mm, um, sure. And then I did an EP version of it in 82 on vinyl. There was never a CD at that time. And that was a limited edition that sold out at the, mostly at the Beatle Fests. Did, right. did you pick all the songs, by the way? Yeah. And then Richard and I wrote kind of a Latin-flavored, kind of a Santana-ish thing called Don't Let Go. But, you know, and this was just all stuff in Paul's catalog. And then it pretty much stayed on the shelf. And then I started my own record label a couple of years ago. And, and I thought, well, here's an opportunity to actually get it out there so that it can be in the streaming arena because that's really how people are consuming music absolutely now. Yeah. You know, yeah so if you use Pandora make sure you set up a Lawrence Tuba radio station that's one of the ways that we artists make money now is by getting played on in that kind of environment and the nice thing is we encourage our listeners the great thing about the digital era at this point is you know, here you are you're listening to Lawrence talk about the album you know when this show wraps up Go listen. You can go listen. You can go, go and purchase, it, go, digitally right. purchase. The, and it's it's a nice kind of way to have that instant gratification. You don't have to wait for it to arrive in the mail. You, you've heard us talking about the album. You can actually go and, and download and it. And other, right. obviously, cool. you know, we haven't even mentioned all your solo all the stuff. Other, you, I yeah. mean, yeah. everything. Oh, you mean old 25 <laughs> solo albums? Right. Yeah, you know, I, most people have heard of, <laughs> well, you know, LJ plays the Beatles. You can't stop playing the Beatles. Yeah. But yeah. but honestly, you know, this, your your original stuff is I Gorgeous. mean, incredible. Yeah. And, and anybody who has not seen you in concert really has not seen a, a yes. good show because, well, we, you know, we've seen you so many times. They still talk about amazing. Lawrence's performance yeah. at our facility it's years amazing. later, and it's still What I would love to. for you to do, Lawrence, uh -oh. a few years ago at the fest, all four members of Wings were on stage together, which I would love to see you guys do a, a small tour because I really think playing Paul Solo stuff, which he doesn't play a lot anymore, would be fantastic. But you have to release a version of My Love, the instrumental version that you did at the fest. I was just hypnotized, basically. I don't want to say amazed, blown away, because that was a overused Hi. words. I was just amazed at how you turned this great melody into something that was a little bit different, but at the same time, 
that guitar solo in the middle was yeah. just perfect. I was yeah. just. I, I I hope your next album has a version of that. There's a solo acoustic version of it on my One Wing album. Yeah, it's amazing. Okay. But it's a little different from that. I don't. I'm not sure. I think the next album is going to be strictly solo guitar. I have some other thoughts going on in terms of doing an, an electric guitar album. But I've got a whole bunch of uh, arrangements and some originals that I'm just about going to start recording. Good. I have a, a, a deal with Hal Leonard to do a folio of standard songs, um, mm. including some of my arrangements, like with Paper Moon, All of Me, um, Stormy Weather, stuff like that. So that's kind of a, an ongoing project. But I am wanting to do more electric guitar work. It's just a question of kind of what the priorities are right now. So where can our listeners find out more about you uh, and all well, of your solo I, albums? My website is lawrencejuba.com, L-A-U-R-E-N-C-E-J-U-B-E-R.com. If you spell it with a W, it still goes through. Oh. Um, <laughs> I have my calendar is on there. It's mostly up to date. There's always stuff coming in. I know... I have a run of gigs on the East Coast at the end of May. Yes. Playing the Cutting Room in New York on the 30th. Um, Victor Vault in Berlin, New Jersey, the 31st. Jam in Java in uh, Vienna, Virginia, June 1st. Little Washington, Virginia on the 2nd. Yeah, we encourage um, people to go see you live. It, it, it's, it's an experience. It's like watching more than one guitarist. Yeah. Wasn't well, my wife, Winnie, always she says, where is the other hand? And well, Every <laughs> time Winnie sees you play, she's always like, where is the other hand? Oh, I thought you were talking about so, you, and that's really no, no, not no, a good thing. <laughs> oh, you mean the way he plays? And, and he, he, he plays the, the all those strings. It seems like he grew yes. a third hand. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. So uh, we really do appreciate the time. People go out and... and uh, LawrenceJuber.com, see Lawrence live, go grab the standard time. It's definitely worth it, as well as all of the other solo Absolutely. Uh, albums. Uh, yeah. But we, again, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it very much. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. So we're going to wrap up now. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this special episode of Fab Four Free For All. I've been your moderator, Mitch Axelrod, and joining me has been... Rob Leonard. And... Tony Chiguardo. And Lawrence Juber. We thank you so much, and we will see you all again real soon. Take care.